Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, B. Ingrid Olson. The Carpenter Center for the Visual Arts at Harvard University is presenting two concurrent Olson exhibitions, History Mother and Little Sister, through December 23rd. Each exhibition is on a separate floor of the Carpenter Center's building. Olson's exhibitions feature site-specific presentations that engage with doubling and mirroring, gendered forms, the interplay between photography and sculpture, and between the body and the built environment. The exhibitions were curated by Dan Byers. A catalog will be available. This week, the Secession in Vienna closed an exhibition of Olsen's work titled Elastic X. In addition, Olsen's work has previously been featured in solo presentations at the Albright Knox Art Gallery in Buffalo, New York, and at the Renaissance Society at the University of Chicago. On the second segment, Reinventing the Americas, Construct, Erase, Repeat, at the Getty Research Institute in Los Angeles. Quick note before we get to this week's show, take a look at your Man Podcast feeds on Monday for a little bonus. In fact, the first of six little bonuses. Be Ingrid Olson after the break. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents a survey of contemporary art from around the state. The exhibition, Reckoning and Resilience, North Carolina Art Now, brings together 30 emerging and established artists. This group survey, featuring approximately 100 works, presents an expansive view of contemporary art in North Carolina, both in terms of regional geography and artistic approaches. The show includes drawing, painting, sculpture, photography, ceramics, textiles, performance, and experimental video. The artists explore themes surrounding historical and current events, identity, loss, remembrance, trauma, and healing. All works are on view at the Nasher for the first time. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Support for the Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, an art museum in St. Louis where ideas are freely explored, new art is exhibited, and historic work reimagined. This fall, the Pulitzer presents Barbara Chase Ribu, Monumentale, The Bronzes, a major monographic presentation examining the artistic vision of the Paris-based artist, novelist, and poet Barbara Chase Ribu. On view from September 16th to February 5th, 2023, Monumentale brings together some 40 major sculptures from the 1950s to the present day, accompanied by 20 drawings. The exhibition illustrates the artist's highly original visual language that is fundamentally global and transhistorical, with influences ranging from Italian Baroque architecture to West African bronze making. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. And we're back. B. Ingrid Olson, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks, Tyler, for having me back. So in each of the two shows you have and have had up in the last few months, you have shown sculptures, three-dimensional objects, and photographs, which you sometimes build into three-dimensional objects. What do you think of as the relationship between your sculptural practice and your photographic practice, you know, such as is there a common thread or investigation between and amongst them? I just wanted to clarify that the Carpenter Center is actually two exhibitions. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but in terms of the overlap between the photographic works and the sculptural works, I think often there's kind of a bleed through between both. I think there's a lot to do with kind of lighting and shadows on the sculptural works in which they kind of reference photographic works in, certain, in terms of like photography is drawing with light. So they kind of are changeable images, if you will, as they sit in space and are drawn on by the sun or the artificial light that the gallery has in it. And the photographic works are often situated in the space in a sculptural way so that they have these kind of extensions, protrusions, guiding the way that you encounter the work. But I think in both of them, there's kind of a sense of cavities being present so that you can kind of enter into the work or it suggests that you might be able to. But there's also dealing with the frame or the rectangle as the space for compression of the viewer or the figure pictured or I guess just kind of the, the image contained within the, the walls of the frame. 
Was there an artist you studied in school or became interested in whose work encouraged you to find through points between sculpture and photography and to do both often simultaneously? I think actually during school, I was drawing and painting mostly. And I didn't start taking photographs or working sculpturally until after school. Your your BFA was in a painting program, we should note. Yes. Yeah. So I think the first moment, I think it was actually through working at the, the Ryerson and Burnham libraries at the Art Institute, I slowly started encountering books and or exhibitions that I didn't miss because I was working there that would kind of guide me into looking at things differently. I just hadn't seen photograph photography, like any kind of things that kind of made me interested in taking photographs until I started working at the Art Institute. And I saw an exhibition there that was very photographic and sculptural. So it just kind of led to this direction. And there were a lot of different artists who just weren't doing you know, just photographs, I guess, is the way to put it. (laughs) Well, maybe another way of asking the same question is, when did Michael Snow become important to you? (laughs) I think I had not known about his work until I saw the Light Years exhibition at the Art Institute. And that was actually, his work was the piece that I was like, "I, I think I can do, I think I can be interested in photography because it was two panes of glass and then photographs glued or sandwiched between them. And I think it was just about the messiest photograph I had seen to date. And I think there's something about the cleanliness of photography that usually kind of puts me off or something, traditional framing and these kind of things. So it was just seeing something that could be raw material left as it is that was really, it sparked something for me. So having established that, you make sculptures and that you make photographs and that they aren't always separable. I still sort of want to start with the sculptures because when people walk into the upstairs show at the Carpenter Center, they see a kind of undescribable U-shaped form (laughs) that has, I don't know, not, not literally appended to it, but kind of extending from it recognizable sculptural forms. The work is called Proto-Coda Index, and it's made from 30 parts. And I think it's the biggest darn thing you've ever made, right? (laughs) I think it is. There are other works in the downstairs exhibition that might put it in competition with it. But yeah, it is the largest and largest quantity of things, you know, if you're talking about numbers, too, that I've ever made. So there are two things that kind of distinguish Protocoda Index. One is a kind of U-shaped form that provides an opening for people to physically enter and have an engagement with the inside half of the object, if you will. And, and the other kind of, air quotes, half is the forms that extend from the U-shape itself. So first, why the U-shape? Well... I wanted to corral the works. I think another moment of kind of giving them an exaggerated frame away from the gallery. And in this instance, it also provided a way that when you first enter, there's actually kind of one of the sharp points of the corner that is directed right at the entry door. So it's not the welcoming you shape when you first enter. So you're confronted with this kind of cube-like monolith that you can't quite see over depending how tall you are. I think it was the idea of making the wall, which is the MDF wall, a part of this work, because most often my relief works have been hung on the wall. And so they kind of are a bridge between the wall and a viewer, but this is actually making its house a part of the work. So yeah, it's not necessarily like counted in terms of the actual sculpture. It can be malleable depending on where it's installed, but this was kind of speaking to the other interior gallery in the space as well, which is this cube that's set inside of the Corbusier gallery, because when the building was built, there were no walls to hang artworks on. So they built this interior gallery that's kind of offset at this strange angle that has no correlation to the building inside as the main kind of like traditional gallery space within the Carpenter Center. So on the inside of this U-shape, there are lots of 
sculptural forms, shapes, seemingly but not quite discrete objects. What is their origin? So these are actually reproductions, if you will, of every sculptural form I've made to date. So that's kind of the the play on the index, which is also a part of the title. So they base I'm thinking of like index in maybe the double meaning kind of way in the sense that like that's my kind of hint of the being somewhat photographic, that they're kind of this impression or marker of a body that's not there. They're hung at different heights corresponding to, in this instance, my body height along the wall. So the things that might reference a torso are hung at torso height, things that are hung or the things that might reference a knee are hung at knee height and so on. But then in the other instance of an index, it's also a compilation of these different component elements, these kind of like informational things. But I think for me, it stems from also thinking about the process of making these things. So that's why I chose to make them in MDF. There was an instance of making some of my reliefs out of kind of molded plastic to make them clear and when I saw the model for this, it was made, I, I work with a fabricator. So I saw the model for the first time after the form had been made and it was laminated MDF. And the like incidental carvings, the marks that happen where the kind of layering and lamination is revealed on the surface, the frontal surface of the form was immediately really exciting to me. And I liked the idea of it being kind of model-like in that sense of it being MDF, but then also feeling like it's a compendium of everything. So these forms and shapes and sculptures that you made over the course of a decade, why did you want to, in this form anyway, bring them all together in one place at one time? It kind of, I think it snowballed maybe. It was a little bit of a pandemic slow slow down kind of fueled decision maybe <laughs> but I, it's like the show was delayed for two years because of the pandemic so it was a you know a long a long making and thinking period leading up to the show and I had made two other what I'm calling multi-part works which were you know variable installations of different relief forms that can be installed along the wall but in different iterations and permutations and around this same time, I was interested in doing something like this for the show, but the curator of the exhibitions, Dan Byers, was really interested in, he was not wanting to use the word retrospective, given the fact that I've only been making work actively maybe for 10 years, but just kind of a retrospective energy. Like he was interested in loans and kind of thinking about past works. And I think it was my bristling at the idea of a retrospective that kind of went in this direction where I was like, well, I can do a multi-part work of everything. <laughs> so that's just my way of inserting all of these works as one work. So it's almost like a an, its own little individual exhibition before the exhibition. That, it's exactly how the pictures look. So what did you learn about what you've been making by bringing it all together in this way? In some instances, I changed the scale slightly of past forms. And in some instances, it worked. And some, I thought, I like the original form. I shouldn't have questioned my past self. I think I'm still kind of processing everything that I've learned from this. But this was a really, I don't know what the word might be, maybe satisfying instance of putting these forms, I don't want to say alone, but as their own work. Because so often my work has been seen together so that there's photographic works right next to these forms and it just felt like a very I don't know what the word might be but I just I feel like it was a satisfying gesture or something just to see them alone and in in mass and there is it is funny because there is like a minor bleed through there's a window into the gallery where there are photographic works so they still are present maybe visually but it still feels like a concrete gesture where it's just these works expressing themselves <laughs> There are some familiar day-to-day -day life, you know, things we encounter in life that are suggested by the forms on the inside of, well, I guess the outside too, sort of, of the you. You know, in my notes, I wrote shelf, window, body, books. Were you, are you hoping people find, I don't know, associations or references across the references to your oeuvre? 
I think I'm always very happy when people see things that I don't necessarily design into them on my own. I was thinking about this recently, and it's taken me a long time to accept and not only accept, but embrace my interest in and kind of natural mental capacity for poetic thinking. And I think, you know, for a long time, it just sounded like maybe it was cheesy or something. But I think there's something to poetry and condensed language and condensed, condensed visual images that allow for other meanings to kind of come out, depending on when you read them, how you read them, who's reading them, and reading an image or something. So I think I'm often trying to make some portion of the body, my body kind of more, like as as minimal as possible to take away as much detail as possible, and then add the little flourishes back in that might make the shadow appear so that what I'm thinking of is revealed. And through that minimal action is the abstraction that kind of allows you to see the book or, you know, and I can of course see these things. And I'm very interested in the idea that they might bridge to architecture. So I love that they're, you know, a shelf or a window. But in my first design of them, I'm thinking it's a chest, you know, not a window. But I think that that multiple reading is exactly why I make work. Are you, were you interested in Marcel Duchamp's box in a suitcase? I'm interested in a lot of things Duchamp has made. I wasn't necessarily thinking about that work. I mean, yeah, they're not, they're not miniatures. No, they're the opposite. (laughs) They're they're doing the Duchamp in reverse, but Uh but the relationship is certainly there. Yeah. No, I think I do really like the idea of recreating things. I don't know. I think there's something really important to seeing things together in a different way. It just allows you to see something that maybe you hadn't noticed before, but his, I don't know, making things like even like the notes that he would reproduce with like, you know, Robert Gober-esque, like I'm using a lithograph to make something that I tore out of a sketchbook, that kind of facsimile in your own work, I think is, I don't know, it's just next level. Rauschenberg, Matisse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's it's there's a long history of it in uh, 20th century art. I've got a few more sculptural things I want to ask about. But before we get there, I want to talk about your interest in gender and gendering and how your interest is generally in resisting and confusing the associations of forms, body parts, compositions, anything that might be related to gender and gendering. And we talked about some of this when you were on the show five years ago. So I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but just enough to allow other conversations to happen as we go ahead here. When did you become interested in, forgive the technical term, futzing constructions of gender? (laughs) Futzing constructions of gender. I think I think it was probably around the same time that I started taking photographs. I think it just starts happening when you know, I was taking still at the very beginning, first person photographs where it was most often images that were seen from my perspective. So my body is imaged and sometimes it's clearly the body of a woman or my body. But I think there was just something so interesting. I think it was like a the way that people would read some of the images as being kind of putting yourself in front of the camera and it's just different when a woman is in an, in an image than when a man is in an image. And so then I think the, the sculptures and the kind of interest in this, I don't know, it kind of stemmed from that and kind of making things more androgynous and when, what are the tells in an image or a body that make it gendered? But I think actually the downstairs space, little sister has many more, kind of plays on sculptural forms that are oftentimes both kind of phallic and vaginal. They're more like thinking about less about androgynous or gendered images, but actually just like it's both, but like sex, like, you know, and it's like, so there's some things that are like a little bit phallic and some things that are maybe more metaphorical for feminine reproductions. There's like an egg, but it's stuck onto like a conical form so it's both in one 
the light fixtures that are in there have both very kind of like maybe the like doll like kind of crevices that are maybe more feminine crotch likes but then they're also and then like display but they also have this kind of little I don't know floral protuberance that might suggest something more phallic or clitoral or a clitoral it's both (laughs) I think and then there's the bulb which what's the bulb so I think there's a lot of interplay and kind of trying to get both in one form in the reliefs and that's always been there but then also especially in the in the really new works downstairs and in the works in Vienna one of the interesting things that kind of distinguishes your sculptural practice is that you place a priority on smallness. Uh, You make these little tiny sculptures that quite often resist specific references to gender, even as they are very much human and body referencing. So I'm thinking of works that were just on view in Vienna. The show closed a couple days before this episode airs. Works such as Driver's Seat, which of course is not the driver's seat, and architect's mouth, which is not an architect's mouth. One, why do you like working at that scale that really requires a visitor to stick the visitor's face into the sculpture to see what the heck is going on? And two, well, let's, let's, let's go with one first. I think the interesting thing that may not be entirely clear from just the documentation of the show is that they're all hung very low. They're hung basically somewhat at my navel height. So everyone that was coming into the show was bent over looking at them. (laughs) So it's not just about getting really close and looking at them. Then you also have to bend over or maybe get on your knees to look at them really closely or, you know, in a seated position. You have to choose to be intimate with them. You have to choose to be intimate. Otherwise you're looking down on them and you can't quite get a full frontal view of them. But yeah, these these came out of like another, you know, new pandemic project, which was like getting really invested in ceramics in a totally new way. But they're all impressions from, or I guess all but one, are impressions from styrofoam, like found styrofoam forms. And I'd been collecting them just because they had a relationship to the cavities of the reliefs that I make and design. But this felt like a way to kind of impress, like hand put clay into them and kind of let them take on the kind of minimal form of that. But I would always see something similar, like this could be, you know, say a crotch, this could be an arm, this could be a mouth, Um, this could be a nose or eyes. I, don't, I very rarely have made assemblages that are like this and they feel more like drawing to me than I've done in a long time. Like they're very provisional and less finished, like less cinched in, I guess, than so much of my other work. So it feels like a little bit of the process of making is a little more on view in these, which was kind of exciting. Some of these sculptures feel a lot more aligned with gendered anatomy, if you will, than maybe as usual in your work, than maybe as usual in your photographs. I mean, so for example, Swan's Juliet, you know, reads like a very specific and phallic body part. And so does Lover's Vase, whereas the works Driver's Seat and Architect's Mouth are opposite. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think a lot of this show, this is another instance of kind of thinking of the architecture of the space as well as my encounter with it and my work in terms of like building the show. I was interested in the X in the space, like the very first space that you walk into. And so that kind of led into this kind of idea of thinking about that. And the elasticity of the space is where the the title comes from. So you encounter the space in a really strange way where you have to re-encounter the whole space. So it feels like this like stretched rubber band that comes back. The show is titled Elastic X. Yeah. But I was thinking also of the idea of like an X chromosome being the kind of sex determinant in a baby and a human. And the idea that 
something might be able to be elastic. So there's, it's like most of these, as I mentioned before, it's like I'm thinking of maybe there being opportunities for both or, and, you know, a non, non-specific reading of the forms. And this is the, like, the Swan's Juliet is basically like a half version of another form that's at the Carpenter Center. And it's the one that I mentioned. It's basically like a swan's egg in, in the front tip. And it's like a hollow, unfertilized swan's egg. And it's put in to this conical kind of holding device. And from the front, it becomes completely abstracted. So it winds up to me looking like an eye, kind of this like very soft, oval, almond shape. And then from the side... As you can see, it's very phallic. So it's a very changeable image, depending on where you're standing. It's kind of doubly phallic. It's it's double-headed. The, the one in the Carpenter Center. Yes, yes. Yes, yeah. That one is about, you know, the, the doubling and the looking and the, the space itself. But yes, it's doubly. We'll have images on manpodcast.com, of course. So as we transition into talking a little bit about your photography, I have been interested in your answer to a question that's in a catalog of a show you were in and you know you were asked you know some uh, the, the the kind of question that you know a very serious person wearing a black turtleneck you know might might ask and to be provocative and that question is why photography you know this big this big this big grand cosmic question and your answer was because there is no better way to tell the truth and a lie at the same time why is that combination of interest? I love when my coyness comes back to bite me in the ass. Um, it's fundamental to the medium. That's why. I, <laughs> that's part of why I ask. I mean, it's been there in the medium since you know 1840. <laughs> I think, and it might just be more recently that I think people are distrusting photography with like you know deep fakes and these kind of things. But it's it's just so strange to me that people understand it as an actuality or truth when it's cropping out the entirety of the rest of the world. So even just a straight photograph would be a construction, but so often I'm actually really constructing the images. So I think more often of them being, I think it just stems from maybe my having studied more painting and those kind of things, but I'm constructing an image and trying to get it to be confusing and unreal. So I think, but then people see photograph and they think it is what it is, but it's so rarely what it is. Plug for the great mid-2010s show, Faking It Manipulated Photography Before Photoshop, that the great Mia Feynman organized for the Met, which tells that story and which people still kind of forget. One of the, the constants through your photographic oeuvre is the question of what we see. That is the line between familiarity and recognition and still wondering what the heck is that. Quite often in your photographs, there are things that we feel like we should recognize, that we think we should know what they are, and we can't quite figure it out kind of leaving the only recognizable elements in those pictures being parts of the body, happens to be your body, limbs or hair or what have you. And I'm curious about how you came, you know, not to deconstruct the body, because I don't think that's exactly what you do, but I think you do question the way the body is seen. And I wonder when you decided that how the body is seen could be the thing around which a practice or an oeuvre might be built? Because you've been doing it for a long time now. Yep. <laughs> I think probably when I first started making images, it started the whole thing, but thinking just kind of in the general kind of philosophical sense of how it is to be in your body and kind of a sense of embodiment, I think feels so different than looking at an image of yourself or of a body. And so I think this, the whole project has kind of been thinking about probably thinking, but also being, and there's just different kind of approaches to, I guess, abstracting things. Well, maybe, maybe art history's a way in, because as I made notes on artists who have decentered and 
sort of sometimes deconstructed how we see the body and what photography has to do with all that. I wrote down four names. Hans Belmer, Pierre Bernard, who of course does it in painting as well, Barbara Probst, and of course we already talked about Michael Snow a bit. And they all make work that has everything to do with the body and then that kind of discards the body. Were, were any of, I mean, I know Michael Snow was important to you, but were any of the other three? Those are great, great names. I do think it's so interesting that you brought up Bonard, just because it's like, I think out of, you know, most people would think only photographically or something, but I think Belmer has like the violence of surrealism, which is sometimes suggested with cropping and mirrors and these kind of things. But then in your Bonard, work, you mean. the like, well, in his work, but I think his work then, too. No, you know, absolutely in his work too. But I think it's there in, in your work as well. I mean, we're, we're going to talk about mirrors in a minute. Yeah, but I think Bonard, the the camouflage and the disappearing figure, has always been so interesting to me. He's one of my favorite painters, and I think the idea that the figure can become one with the ground and is secondary to the first impression of the image, basically, I think is just always there. And Barbara Probst, I learned about much later than I would have liked, but I really love her work. And I think that idea of looking while looking is definitely in there. You know, the thing about Probst is there is a, you know, with Probst, and I think with your work, it takes a second to understand what we're looking at. And then quite often, once we figure it out, we wonder why, why the image was composed that way. And so I wanted to try to understand that a bit, maybe by using one or two works of yours. And the work I came up with was Harness and Ornament, which is a 2122 work that was in the Secession show. I say that five times fast. And at the risk of being a little bit gotcha, how would you describe what that picture shows or is of? <laughs> I often joke with friends that we should you know, just describe things, like have, have an exhibition of things that are just described and never shown. I think, so this is basically a mirror, like two mirrors, a glass object, and my legs with the glass object between them. Your legs are spread. Mm -hmm. And there's like both the mirrored perspective and first person legs to the side. So it's both imaged in this, this work. But yeah, there's like a, a mirror below that I'm sitting on and a mirror in front. So it winds up kind of doing the spatial confusion and folding that happens sometimes with mirrors. And then there's some plexiglass on either side of the hung object, which uh, sort of does the work of extending your legs in plastic form. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It Oftentimes the plexiglass has served to kind of do the doubling of the, the image with the reflections on the side, if it's a darker plexiglass, but I didn't anticipate it not doing it as much. It kind of goes away and then they're not as reflective as other darker plexiglass would be. But yeah, these these are definitely much more about blocking the image from the side view than kind of the interior view of it. So when you were on the show five years ago, this is going to sound really weird, but we'll have a link on the show page. Listeners should go back and listen because they will enjoy it. But we talked about crotches. <laughs> five, five years ago. And this is very much a crotch picture. Why did you want this glass object, which looks kind of like a light bulb from the future, to be the center of the image? Maybe, maybe another way of asking this is what were you both constructing here and deconstructing here? Well, there's probably a lot in there. It definitely feels womb-like to me and its positioning, but it's this reflective object that both reflects the things around it but it is also transparent and it's empty and so there's this I think doubling of the idea of these images within these kind of box forms that speak to the idea of capacity a capacity to hold something but I think maybe in these last few years I've just been thinking about fertility as a different kind of capacity and it's just interesting there's the capacity to do something that might not be fulfilled. And so there's this idea of having a womb that is empty or a space that is empty. So I think there's, you know, in all of these kind of whatever the sex part might be, there's a capacity to do something that 
is not always acted upon. One of the things that happens in this picture, and I, you know, might be the reason I picked it, is the way light works across the picture. Light is bouncing everywhere. Light is bouncing off the mirror. Light is bouncing off and through the glass object juxtaposed against your crotch. And the result is we see these little grains or specks of light, you know, kind of cosmically dancing across the image. Was that important to you here? Or did that just happen because you had all of this reflective, mirrored, glassy stuff going on? You know, it's these are film images, so I'm not ever sure exactly what I'm going to get. But oftentimes, I mean, I have an idea at this point, but the the flash photography sometimes completely empties out an image and goes so white that there's very little left. And other times it just does this nice kind of lighting up some things and not others, depending on how how strong or where it's pointed. But I think this image just has, it has a little bit of the reverberation that happens sometimes in a, in a dark room when something is flashed, like there's a doubling of the figure or whatever. So I think there's just a lot of magical, unintended things that happened in this image that I always like when they happen, but it wasn't, I didn't know exactly, but I do think the, the, I don't know what you call them, the speckles or whatever. It's like dust. It's dust on the mirror. And dust is something that's always been really interesting to me, but I think it feels like, you know, an accumulation of presence or time that is a nice marker that it showed up because it was flashed. So everything in this picture and, you know, honestly, lots of things in lots of your pictures are about uncertainty and confusing binaries. The one part of your pictures that, the the one element within your pictures that seems not to participate in that narrative is your use of mirrors. You know, mirrors, we think, reflect right back what is in them. And there is an extraordinarily rich European art history of mirrors both because artists, for obvious reasons, have almost always been fascinated with optics and how optics, optical devices could be used to help them construct images, but also because it allowed to kind of, allowed artists to break kind of fourth wall rules. I mean, think of like Titian's famed Venus with a Mirror at the National Gallery. Are you interested in any of that history in any of the way mirrors have been used in historical art? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> uh huh. Yes, I'm interested in that. I think it's in there. I like it as a tool, but also a conceptual device for both reasons. What are some of the conceptualisms you like doing with mirrors? What does it open up for you that maybe plays on that five or six or seven hundred year old art historical playing ground? I think oftentimes mirrors are associated with, you know, very quickly like narcissus narcissism but i think for me it's it still has to do with doubling reproduction and kind of more of like the the sense of photography like cameras having mirrors in them and just this kind of like refracted image which feels like just another maybe foil to hint at the idea of the photograph being a construction kind of like the way in venus with a mirror Titian is pointing out at how paintings are constructions. Yeah, and I think like all of the all of the the paintings of the the self portraits of people where you can see their their you know I'm thinking of like Rembrandt or you know it's like the double. <laughs> We've talked before about how one of the standards you like kicking in the shins is big male minimalism. There aren't a ton of mirrors in minimalism, but certainly there are Robert Smithson's mirrors. Do they interest you at all, even as something to play against? I think I've never put actual mirrors in an exhibition, but I, I think, no, like I think, I think I like them as image makers, not, not as direct as Smithson uses them. Yeah. And I think most often I think of like, you know, minimalism being the more sculptural object, the material itself. And I, I've never, I mean, up to now I have not used mirrors, but I think The closest thing would be those kind of darker plexiglass moments where they reflect an image, but then it still kind of sits in the realm of being a part of the image. The way Smithson uses mirrors is super literal, kind of like, don't want to overdo this, but it's very Bierstadian. You know, there's there's nothing 
what you see is what you get. It's it's very straightforward, not trying to be metaphorical, not trying to be referential. It's it's just simple, straightforward image construction. I'm glad you mentioned reflection because that was the last thing I wanted to ask you about. You aren't just using mirrors to reflect things in your pictures. Often the plexiglass that is part of the three-dimensional object that has a photograph within it does reflection, and you often kind of have reflections that reverberate through images. Is there an, 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 an historical construction of reflection, such as from 19th century American painting maybe, or maybe from European art, or maybe from poetry, or maybe from theory, that you're playing with? And I'm, this is one of those questions I'm asking because I really don't have the foggiest, but I can tell you're doing things with reflection that are different. I don't, I think there's nothing, I'm not basing it in anything um, other than the actual just studio investigations and things that are happening as I'm responding to things. But I will say the the exhibition at the Carpenter Center on the first floor kind of offered totally new ways of thinking about this because of the structure of the space. It's basically the the windows are almost wall-like, they're floor to ceiling. So there's a transparency through the space, but it's glass. So it still has some element of reflection, especially, and it's like variable depending on the time of day and the light outside, but you can actually see through the space from one side to the other. So there's moments of being able to see two outdoor works with the indoor works all at once. So there's this kind of, it's a compression or something that kind of reflects exterior and interior all at once. And I think it just offered like a wholly different space to think through some of these ideas that I often think through in making photographs. So it was just kind of a a big studio to work in almost. (laughs) There's There's a picture in the show called Equant and Run with Cartilage, Equant, Equant, in which we see in the very center of the image a hand holding an image looking back at us as we're looking at the image, which both suggests and rejects reflection. And it's full of these kind of reflexive, your work is always full of reflexive rejections, things that we think are going to be reflexive and then aren't, things that suggest things and then aren't. There's a little bit of Bernard in that too. And so I guess this isn't really a question. It's just a a celebration of how a lot of the fun in a lot of your works is in embracing the uncertainty and to look at your work is to celebrate what we don't and won't know, I think, very often. And I think that's a lot of fun. I do think there's something, especially in that work, There's that's one of few works that is very little of me in the image. You know, it's my hand and that's it. And then it's these sculptural forms. But I think however much I'm in it or not, I think oftentimes the like play with, I don't know if you'd call them sculptural props or forms, the things that are around, it's like, it's a matter of being open to things being other things and allowing things to kind of, I don't know, be seen differently, depending on what the angle is, how the image is taken, or just be seen differently, you know. I like that thought. That's a perfect one to end on. B. Ingrid Olson, thanks very much. Thank you so much. On view through October 30th at the Getty Center, the imaginative new exhibition Cy Twombly Making Past Present explores the American artist's lifelong fascination with ancient Greece and Rome. Through evocative groupings of Twombly's paintings, drawings, prints, and sculpture made from the mid-20th to the early 21st century, the show traces a journey of encounters with and responses to ancient Mediterranean art and poetry. The exhibition, produced with the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, includes sculpture from the artist's personal collection on public display for the first time. Plan your visit, learn about related events, and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Women Painting Women, on view May 15th through September 25th at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. Women Painting Women features 46 female artists who choose women as subject matter in their works. This presentation, international in scope, includes evocative portraits that span the late 1960s to the present. All place women, their bodies, gestures, and individuality at the forefront, conceiving new ways to activate and elaborate on the portrayal of women. 
The artists highlighted in the exhibition use painting and women as subject matter and range from early trailblazers like Alice Neal and Emma Amos to emerging artists such as Jordan Castile and Apollonia Sokol. Women Painting Women at the Modern through September 25th. Welcome back. Next up, Idure Alonzo joins me to discuss her new exhibition, Reinventing the Americas, Construct, Erase, Repeat, at the Getty Research Institute in Los Angeles. The exhibition considers the ways in which artists have helped construct ideas about the Western Hemisphere, particularly in the decades after the arrival of Europeans. It's on view through January 8th, 2023. Idure Alonzo, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. I'm glad to be here. Right at the beginning of your exhibition, you note that the Americas, as we think of the Americas today, is a European construction partially informed by the visual production of the place by European artists. How do you both recognize and acknowledge that, but also critically address it in exhibition form? Well, this exhibition basically looks at the illustrations in books and also the prints that were created from the 16th century to the 19th century by Europeans on the Americas. And that specific image that is being created through all these artworks is quite important to understand what is the image and the construction on the continents that is being created actually by foreigners that most of the time are artists, great artists that had never been to the Americas. So the exhibition has many different levels. What I mean by levels is that you can look at the works in the show and I think you would understand what the premises of the show is, this idea of how there is an invention of the Americas created by the artists, by European artists specifically. But then how that construction happens is related also to the chronicles of the period. So if you think about how these artists were creating these images, you have to think that they were reading books that were descriptions of the Americas by the Chronicles. Let's think about someone like Christopher Columbus or Hernán Cortés about Mexico. Those Chronicles were already kind of fantastic in, in a way. And the exhibition actually starts with the first letter that Christopher Columbus sends to the King of Spain, a little excerpt of the letter in which he's explaining the marvels of La Española, uh, Española, which is today Dominican Republic and Haiti. And he's already talking about rivers filled with gold, for example. So when I decided to title this show Reinventing the Americas, it's because there is a reinvention over a reinvention about the continents. In many cases, there's a lot of stereotypes that are built during this period with these images. We can take those stereotypes even to today in popular culture, for example. European art, for example, is rich with allegories and has been for centuries and centuries. So how did Europeans construct allegories of the Americas in line with European forms? And how did that help form European understandings about the Americas and its people? Well, first, there is a construction of the allegory of America. The personification of, of, the Amer of America is this woman, you know, that there's allegories of all the continents. The exhibition starts with a first section that is about that construction of the allegory of America that happens in the beginning of the 16th century. And this woman, America, is always naked, wears feathers. Either, you know, she has a headdress with feathers or a little skirt made out of feathers then the reason why she's naked is because it's a way to say that America, it's a place full of savages. <laughs> and then she usually has a head, a human head in her hands or at her feet. That is a reference to cannibalism. Uh, then you'll see animals from the Americas around her. Sometimes you'll see parrots, crocodiles, other animals from the Americas, and then you'll see also the Tupinamba club, which is this tool, Brazilian tool, that was used by indigenous people 
the hammock also appears many times. So you have all these different elements that construct this idea of the allegory of America. And then what is really important is that all those elements are also taken to create an archetype of the indigenous people of the Americas. So they're using the same things. And I mean, when you see America, when you see how the indigenous people are portrayed, they're using European conventions. So you'll see people that look like Greek and Roman statues, for example. And there is some, an homogenization in the way these images are created. Like you can see depictions of people from Mexico or from California all the way to Patagonia in Argentina, and they all represented in the same way, when we know that that is not realistic, of course. But they're creating an, an archetype about, about this image of the indigenous people. Of course, a perfect example of the lasting power of that image of America being represented by a naked woman with a feathered headdress is the Thomas Crawford Statue of Freedom on top of the U.S. Capitol Dome, you know, which dates to the late 1850s and was erected in the 1860s, in which, of course, the artist Keon Williams and I discussed on the program a couple weeks ago. American nature also fascinated Europeans. So how did European artists represent American nature, especially seeing as they'd never seen it? <laughs> and what story did the way they represented nature communicate? Well, I think in the representation, there's always a dichotomy. Like, they're fascinated by the nature. Even they're fascinated by the people. But at the same time, it's also terrifying because it's unknown. And so they encounter new animals, new plants, new trees, new landscapes. And there is a huge fascination about that. And you'll see a lot of books about natural histories where they have these, these new elements of nature, the descriptions and also images. And that's part of the exhibition in many different books. For example, there is one book about the medicinal plants in Mexico. Philip II, the king, sends his doctor to Mexico to study the medicinal plants in Mexico and he stays over 10 years in Mexico. That book is quite interesting because it also shows an indigenous transfer of knowledge because obviously he's talking to the indigenous people to get information. And when you look at the illustrations, you even see indigenous hands in, the, in those illustrations. And then the names of the plants are in Latin, but also in Nahuatl. So uh, that's a really important book, in my opinion, that we have. But for example, the pineapple, there is a huge fascination with the pineapple. It's a fruit that is also like then taken to the to the courts of kings and queens in Europe. And then the animals, you know, the representations of anteaters, sloths, armadillos, all these animals that in many cases are represented in a very fantastical way. Sometimes they create images of monsters that don't even exist. And we also need to think that there is a counterpart to all these natural resources. And because obviously they see the potential of these natural resources. And this is the beginning of destruction of those natural resources and also the beginning of slavery that is very much connected to that. So there is a lot of different levels in what the nature of the Americas means during colonization. We will have an image of, of a pineapple. Maria Sibila Marion, her 17th century pineapple with butterflies, which I believe is hand-colored in the show, it is, like, I, I don't mean this as a joke, it's literally wild in the sense that there is not just a pineapple and a butterfly, but a butterfly at each stage of life. It's quite a thing. <laughs> well, you know, Marion Sibila, we only have two female artists in the show. And um, one of them is Marian Sibila, and it's a fascinating story. She is someone very much interested in, in butterflies, and she travels to Suriname by herself with her daughter at the end of the 18th century to study the butterflies. And so 
that book that you were referring to is an amazing book. It's a huge book with these colorful illustrations. And as you can imagine, as a woman to go to Suriname by yourself, it was something very rare. Again, her book also has important information about indigenous knowledge and critiques about slavery in Suriname. We'll have an image of that work on manpodcast.com. It is well worth the surf just on, on its own. You know, as I was looking through images of works that are in this show, I found myself wondering how this visual material operated, both in Europe and within the Americas, when, if and when it made its way to this side of the Atlantic, and whether you have or built, as you constructed this show, an idea of how that happened. I think that many of these books were collected by people that were interested in places beyond Europe. I am not sure, like, if they were, if they also arrived to the Americas, were probably in the hands of people from Europe that brought them. And at the GRI, our collections, and you can see that through the show, are basically based on these European books and production. So that's why. I had to focus on that because most, I mean, our, our exhibitions are based on our own collections. Of course, there are books that were created from Latin America or from the Americas that also tell other stories or, you know, stories from the indigenous perspective, but those are very few. I mean, I can think, of course, of the Florentine Codex, but those are materials that are rare and very difficult to get. So. I made the decision to just focus on on these European materials. And, you know, it took some time for these different countries to develop their printing presses. And so that means that, I mean, there is a reason why in our collection we don't have a lot of books that were printed in the Americas. And if you look at our list of, of materials, you'll see that you know, these books were being produced in the main centers for book production in Europe. One of the things I noticed in looking through works on this show is that the representation of Native Americans in your exhibition is pretty similar to how white American artists and photographers chose to portray Native Americans hundreds of years later. Some of the tropes are familiar also from, again, the U.S. Capitol, such as the Columbus doors or Rogers doors that Randolph Rogers made for the east entrance of the U.S. Capitol. And I'm thinking, too, of, say, photography or print culture of 1860s California. What forms of representation of Native Americans did you notice being established, if that's the right word, by some of the makers within your show? Well, I think there is a change in the show in terms of representation. There is a a clear division between what happens pre-19th century and what happens during the 19th century. And so that's why the show is divided, like the, the last gallery is dedicated specifically to the 19th century, because in the 19th century, you do have a much more scientific approach to these uh, representations. So you start to see presentations that are clearly targeted to show how the botocudos in, in Brazil, how do they look and what are their characteristics? And that's something that you wouldn't see during the colonial period. And again, the way these representations are done in the 19th century are from the, are depicting this otherness at the same time. There's no like close connection between what you're representing and who you are, as I said, very scientific approach. And I think that's what happens with photography. That 19th century representation is then what is used in in these photographs. And I'm thinking on 19th century photographs of indigenous people in Latin America. They do have this almost anthropological side to it. And in other times, there's also a lot of staging happening in, in those in those photographs, especially if the photographs are taken in studios. But this otherness in the representation is very clear also in photography. That's interesting. I mean, I've noticed in my own research how lots of mid-19th century photographs of, say, Native Americans that are in collections in, say, California or New York are titled Type of Indian or Types 
type of Indians, which is both that kind of pseudoscientific reference, but also is is descended, you know, a phrasing descended in the American context anyway from Samuel George Morton's Notorious Types of Mankind, you know, an original, you know, maybe the most significant American contribution to the transatlantic pseudoscientific discourse of the early 19th century. So it's there in the language and the naming of, of, of pictures as, as well. In Latin America, we have this genre that is types and costumes. And, and that starts with drawing and painting, but then it goes into photography when the medium arrives to, to Latin America. So it's, it's the same idea. Yeah, there's a, there's a transatlantic intellectual discourse definitely going on. Before I go on, I just you mentioned that this there's there's a whole section of the show that that is 19th century work. That that section is called 19th century travelers. It is always dangerous and false to present history as an inevitability, of course, and to erase dissenters and their resistance, be they native or European, from narratives. So you include work in the show by Theodore Debray or Debris, a Frankfurt-based engraver. Who was he? And what stories was he telling in his volumes on the Americas? Well, he, he's key to understand the image of the Americas that is created during the colonial period. He was an engraver that created more than 600 engravings, copper engravings, to illustrate his books. He created, I think it was like about 22 volumes about the Americas. And these were almost like what would be for us today, coffee table books. And he was taking works by other people. I mean, like, for example, putting together, I don't know, the work of Chronicles and then creating the images for those books. And so these 600 images were then copied over and over and over again throughout the centuries. And so you encounter the British images in many books to the point that even today in textbooks in Latin America, you'll see his images as references in, you know, books about history. Now, what is important about the British is that he was living during the time of wars of religion in, in Europe. So he was a Protestant that had to leave his country because of that. And so in his many illustrations, there is an image of the Spaniards as these tyrants, that they were doing these horrible things on, in the Americas. And, you know, I think from our perspective today, when we see these images, it would be very easy to think that his images are kind of like going with the idea of the indigenous people and the suffering of the indigenous people. But in reality, it wasn't about that. It was about portraying the Spaniards and Catholicism as this like horrible thing, capable of doing these horrible things. So it's almost like it's um, a reference against Catholicism. That is what it is in his images. And for example, when he decides to use the book of Fray Bartolomé de las Casas and you know, the Las Casas is a very important person in this, in the history of the colonial time because he is the first one to talk against the atrocities that are being committed against the indigenous population by the Spaniards. And then the Brit decides to use his book, which, you know, when Bartolomé de Las Casas writes his book, this is all about he wants the indigenous people not to become slaves. And there's a, a lot of discussions about that in the Vatican, about the fact that, that you know, he's saying that the indigenous people have a soul and they can be converted and they shouldn't be slaves. And, and that is a fight that he wins. And it's very, very important. And his book is very critical of what happened. But when Debris decides to create illustrations, it is not because he's supporting the ideas of Bartolomé Las Casas. It's because he wants to portray the Spaniards and Catholicism as a horrible thing. Your exhibition doesn't include only books from the past. It foregrounds an artist named Denelson Baniwa. 
Who is he and how have you included his address of these histories within your project? Denilson Baniwa is an indigenous artist from the Amazon region in Brazil. And well, when I was uh, putting together this exhibition, I was very clear that I needed I needed in the show the other side of history. And as I told you before, it was very hard to get these very few materials that tell the other side of the story. So I decided to invite a contemporary artist to insert his voice in the exhibition. Uh, the Nilsson, in my opinion, was the perfect person to do that because he was already working with many of these colonial images that are in our books. And he does this layering with his own work that I thought would be an interesting way to approach our materials and to make you look at the objects in a different way. So I invited him to participate. As I, as I said, I asked him, I want you to insert his voice in this exhibition. And he did so by generating some interventions into the objects themselves. He also created two video art pieces. There are several murals throughout the show. And then there is a cabinet of curiosities that he created and a big mural in front of it that tells the history of creation from the Vaniwa perspective, from his own cultural perspective. Awesome. We'll have some images of that work on manpodcast.com as well. Idure Alonso, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.